Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Tonight is the opening of the new Broadway show, The Cottage, and I am so happy to be joined by its playwright, Sandy Rustin. Sandy Rustin was one of the most produced playwrights of the 2022-23 Broadway season, as per American Theatre Magazine, thanks in large part to her high school version of Clue, which is extremely popular at schools around the country. Her other plays include American Girl Live, The Suffragette's Murder, Mystic Pizza, Rated P for Parenthood, and others. As an actor, she's appeared in I Love You, You're Perfect Now Change, Hotel Suite, and Sarah Plain and Tall Off-Broadway, and at the Upright Citizens Brigade. She's also adapted the scripts of Dear World and I Married an Angel for Encores. And now, without further ado, here's Sandy Rustin. Well, so I'd love to start us off by asking, how did you first become interested in theater? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in Chicago, um, and I grew up in a house with a really funny dad. And so we, you know, by the time I was seven years old, we I had memorized the Who's On First routine, the Abbott and Costello Who's On First routine. And um you know, I grew up sort of watching the Carol Burnett show and I love Lucy and listening to Mel Brooks albums at a, at a very inappropriately young age and just kind of fell in love with comedy and theater and sketch comedy and, and all that kind of stuff. And Chicago was a great place to grow up for a kid who was into that. You know, I was able to take improv comedy classes and sketch comedy classes and um, yeah, really find my way. Um, in the Chicago scene and I went to college at Northwestern and sort of stayed there and then right after I graduated from college I moved to New York to to try to do it in the Big Apple so yeah that's that was kind of my beginning journey. And so I know you started out in New York as an actress but did you have being a writer kind of at the back of your mind or? Definitely in fact I I have um my mom has saved this little blurb from a Mother's Day book I made her when I was in the sixth grade that where I had to write a bio about myself. And it's like, you know, Sandy lives in Glenview, Illinois with her mom and her dad and her brother and whatever. And it goes on a little bit. And then at the end, it says she hopes to grow up to be an actress and a playwright. Wow. So I think, yeah, it was always I always had that dual focus and dual intention since I was little. And were people around you like your parents sort of supportive of your wishes to do that and definitely yeah my family there's nobody else in my family that works in the professional theater um but they're all theater lovers you know everybody we would see every show that came to town in Chicago and had subscriptions at the Marriott Lincolnshire and Jury Lane and went to you know I had an internship at the Goodman Theater and so yeah you know the um my family showed up to every performance they drove me to every dance class you know they were really um they they liked that I had something I felt passionate about and they really supported that all, all along the way. 
And did you have mentors in terms of teachers or professors? Or? Sure, definitely. Um, when I was in middle school, there was a woman named Kimmy Weinberg who ran the middle school musical. Um, and I just I thought she hung the moon. She was so magical. That's just that the way she would work with all the kids and put up this amazing production. And she was so positive and loving. And I just adored her. I wanted to be just like her. Um, and then in high school, I had a wonderful teacher named Darylin Marks who ran the musical theater department uh, at New Trier High School. And again, she was just so loving and warm and competent. And it was wonderful for me to have these strong women who were excellent at their jobs and had such a passion for the theater. Um, and then again, in, in college, when I was at Northwestern, I found my acting teacher was a woman named Don Mora who I just adored, may she rest in peace. Um, and she too, I mean, she, she was the woman who told me when I was graduating college, she said, be patient, Sandy, you know, big things might not happen in your life till your forties professionally. Don't give up, you know, keep, keep plugging along. And I'm so grateful every day that she said that. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure. I had wonderful mentors along the way. And so at first, when you moved to New York, did you find that you had a lot of success right away in terms of getting jobs or? You know, I had, it was a funny trajectory. So I moved to New York right after I graduated college and I went on my first audition, which was for the national tour of Greece. And I got cast that same week to play Sandy in the national tour of Greece. So then I left, you know, I rehearsed for a couple, you know, maybe a couple months in New York and then. I was gone for a year on that national tour. And that was my first experience of being in New York was like, a, you know, just a job right away, which was so uh, thrilling. And then I came back and then it turned into a much more normal uh, young actor in New York experience where I was waiting tables. I had little side jobs. I was doing shows in the West Village and cabarets here and auditioning for everything and student films and, you know, just ran the gamut. Um, but yeah, I would, I was continuing to get cast just enough to um, keep me feeling like, oh, this is, this is potentially a career. And then in 2001, I was hired um, to replace Jennifer Samard in I Love Your Perfect Now Change. And so I came in as Jen's replacement um, in that original company. And I was in that show for like three and a half years. Um, and that was just a dream. You know, it was so fun to be doing essentially a sketch comedy musical, right? That's what that show was. Um, it was great. And I loved the people and I had the best time. And then I, when I left that play, uh, that musical, I, I left to go uh, cover Molly Ringwald. I was her understudy in a play that James Lapine was directing, a Daniel Goldfarb play called Modern Orthodox. And while I was in that play, I, uh, I got pregnant. I had gotten married a few years prior. And so then I decided to start a family. Um, and so I took a step back from performing for a while um, and had my boys. And then I shifted my focus more to writing because um, it was uh, a way to really stay active and involved in the theater with a, a more conducive schedule for um, parenting for me and my husband. Right, right. And to go back a little bit to when you were acting, um, what was it like to stay in that show, I Love You, You're Perfect Now Change, for so long and sort of have to keep it fresh every night? And Yeah, I loved it. I, you know, that show, um, it was like the audience was the fifth character. There were four of us and that show sold really well for a long time. It was one of, you know, one of the longest running shows 
off-Broadway in New York, I think maybe it like had the record for a while and um, people loved it. So it was such a joy to get to be a part of that show at that time. It was fun every single night. I absolutely loved my castmates. They're still all dear friends. Um, and it was, you know, it was the life I had always dreamed of living was getting to go do eight shows a week at a New York City theater. I loved it. I loved the whole experience of it. Right. And what was the experience like of learning from some of these great theater figures who you worked with, like James Lapine or Neil Simon on Hotel Suite? Or Yeah. You know, when you're in the moment, um, you're just kind of living your life. And it's only sort of after the fact that you can take a step back and a breath and say, like, oh, my gosh, how fortunate am I to have had this opportunity to be in the room and and, you know, get to work with these just absolute greats of, of the industry. And it's a privilege to get to be alive at the same time as these people and to get to be in the room. I remember um, I was working on Neil Simon's uh, hotel suite for the roundabout and he was in the room, you know, pretty regularly um, making changes. And he had this, he, you know, he, here, I'll show you. He had a yellow notepad just like this. Um, and uh I thought how I just I admired his um like he had a routine with his writing that I thought was so cool that's like he had the pen that he liked and the notepad that he liked and I was like when if I'm ever a writer one day I want to be like that um and so I I took that little nugget with me I I always write with the the writing tools of Neil Simon <laughs> that Neil Simon liked um yeah so for sure like you pick things up along the way almost unconsciously take it with you Right. And having had this great experience as an actor, how do you think that it informs the way you sort of write for actors as a playwright? Yeah, I think more more even than having been an actor, I think it is my experience as an improviser. Wow. Um, I did a lot of improv comedy growing up and in my early years in New York. And there's something about the idea of... Um, the best idea sort of rises to the top and you follow you follow the game of a of of a scene and you're working with your scene partners and you're yes anding other people's ideas and all of that uh kind of improvisational mentality is really how I how I look at my writing you know when I come into it um I'm always sort of seeking where where are the games how do i how do i heighten how do i yes and this next moment um and so i would say more than anything that has informed the the way i go about writing and then i think i always have my actor brain right so when i'm done with the first draft of a script i go back through as if i have been hired to play each part you know i'll do a, a whole pass through the script as if i am playing miss peacock as if i am you know i play each part in my brain to make sure that that role tracks for an actor brain um, and really that's sort of my final pass through a script before I'm ready to share it with somebody. And what was the process like of figuring out what type of comedy sort of appeals to you most, both as an actor, but especially as, as a playwright? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I even know the answer to that question. I don't know that there's any one sort of something that appeals to me most. Um, I really like being surprised. I really like, um, you know playing with um the new and the old like 
um, in this play that I'm working on now, The Cottage, it takes place in 1923. And the genre is sort of steeped in that sort of Noel Coward, Cole Porter era of theater making. But I was interested in seeing if I could take that genre and try to filter it through a bit more of a contemporary lens or a feminist eye. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I have any one brand of comedy. I think I just am curious and interested in exploring it all. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I go, go about it. Right. And you have worked on a few things sort of in both respects that deal with that same time period, like Jolson or then like the suffragettes murder as, as a writer. And what sort of appeals to you about that era? Sure. So, well, the suffragettes murder actually takes place in 1857. Oh. So um, it's right at the cusp of the women's movement. So that's still like um, a 19th century play. Um, Jolson and Company was a play that spanned many years. Um, so that was sort of like spanned the lifetime of Al Jolson. Um, and I was Nancy Anderson's understudy in that play. She was so terrific. And she, her character, her role uh, played every character and all the women in Al Jolson's life over many, many, many years. So yes, it was, there was a flapper era, that Ruby Keeler era, um, that is the 1920s. Um, but the, but the play wasn't, it wasn't steeped in the 1920s for the whole time. This play, The Cottage that I'm working on takes place in the 20s, 1923, but it's in Britain. So it's a little bit different than that sort of American flapper era. There was, you know, there were other things going on, historically speaking. I would say more than being committed to one particular era, I really enjoy playing in the sandbox of period pieces in general. Um, Clue takes place in the 50s. Mystic Pizza is an 80s piece. Um, I'm, I'm working on another piece that takes place in the 90s. Um, I really like sort of setting yourself in a time in, in history and then all that comes with that um, is exciting to me as a challenge as a writer. Right. And what is your research process like to you? Like look at a lot of photos from that time or read books or? Yeah, it totally depends on the project. For The Suffragette's Murder, that was a commission from Florida Studio Theater to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the beginning of uh, the women's right to vote. And uh I said to them, great, I'd love to do this. Is it okay if I write a comedy? And they said, sure. And so I went to the library and just started reading about what was happening in the women's movement. Uh, and, and I traced it all the way back from that 1920 period back to like really what was the cusp of it. Um, and in doing my research and reading, I came across this book about a boarding house in New York City that had all these oddball borders. And I thought, oh, that would be a really fun, that's like a great location I could set I could get a whole bunch of colorful characters all dealing with the women's movement and the cusp of the women's movement in different ways and create this sort of faux murder mystery comedy. Um, yeah, so that was sort of the entire concept for that play came out of the research that I was doing. So that was exciting. You know, Clue was a little bit different. In Clue, I was just really researching all of the existing content and the time period, communism and the Red Scare, um, McCarthyism, all of that. So with each piece, there's becomes different. I'm working on a new piece right now about the Loch Ness monster. Ah. And so I'm deep, deep in research about Scottish myth mythology and um, mythology in general. And so, so that's fun. So each piece sort of takes me in a new direction as to, you know, where I need to put my energy and time. 
Right. And I believe the cottage has been in development since at least 2013, if, if not before. And how did the idea first occur to you? Yeah, sure. So the cottage, I, um, I had had this musical that opened and closed in New York called Rated P for Parenthood. And it was really, really fun. And I, um, that was sort of my first professional play in New York. And um, I thought, well, I want to write something totally different from that. You know, what do I love? What else do I love? And um, one of my favorite theatrical experiences was playing Sorrel Bliss in Hay Fever at Northwestern that was directed by Dominic Messini, who was our, uh, speaking of mentors, I loved him. He was a wonderful professor of mine at Northwestern. And um, I just loved the experience. There was this like champagne and cigarettes vibe to the set and um, the language was so lush and I just loved it. So I thought, well, what would happen if I tried to write my own kind of hay fever? What does that look like? And so then I that led me down a path of reading all sorts of plays of that era and that genre and these sort of comedy of manners. Uh, I went real deep down that route and then thought, huh, all these female characters leave a bit to be desired. They're all sort of secondary. What would happen if I tried to write something like this steeped in that same genre, um, but where the female characters are really, that's who has our central focus if we're paying attention to the female stories. Uh, and so that was really what I set out to do with The Cottage and keep it fun. And, you know, um, it certainly has a, a message throughout it. Like I, I hope that audiences leave um, thoughtful, but the intention is to be fun and in the spirit of those com comedies of days gone by. Right. And what have been kind of in a broader sense, some of the changes that have been made during the long kind of workshop period? Oh, gosh, a lot of changes. I think um, I've learned so much. It's been a little bit over 10 years since I first, you know, sat down to write this play. And I think initially I was more interested in the exploration of the genre than the exploration of the characters or the themes. And as the play grew, as actors brought their own brains to it, as I got to work with wonderful directors each step of the way, um, you know, I was able to curate opinions and ideas and uh, strengthen the play enormously over this decade. Um, and even still, even now in the rehearsal room, I'm still hearing from actors and um, learning from, from the, the, the environment that I'm in and making changes accordingly. So yeah, it's, it's never done. It's always a work I, in progress. Yeah. And how did the idea for a Broadway for a New York production sort of develop? Was that always the goal or? No, I mean, I could never have imagined when I sat down to write this play. When I wrote this play, I had like, my kids were like six and two. And, you know, I was, uh, I was just scratching a creative itch. I just had an idea and I wanted to make this play. I didn't, I never imagined, I did not have lofty goals. I was just doing something for fun for me. Um, in 2016-ish, I think it was, I was doing a musical called Found. I was in it as an actor and the woman who was producing it um, was sort of lamenting not having that much female driven content to produce. She was looking for, for more of that. And I said, well, I have a play, would you read it? And she did. And that sort of started the trajectory towards this, um, this Broadway experience, which is such a treat. Oh yeah. And how did you first come to meet and work with Jason Alexander? And what has that sort of collaboration been like? Yeah, so he, um, 
He had been directing regionally for a while and felt like he was ready to make his Broadway debut as a director. And at the time, we were both represented at the same agency. And so he asked his agent, do you have any comedies lying around? I'm ready for one, you know, that's ready for Broadway. And uh, so they gave him a whole stack of shows that were, had sort of been around regionally and were ready for the next step. And he gravitated to this play. And I went out to L.A. and I met with him and we just really connected. and. Yeah. So then, and then once he was on board, then um, the producers were also on board and then it sort of, then a team sort of started to develop. Right. Right. And it also has an amazing cast, this production with Laura Bell Bundy and Eric McCormack and all that. And what was the kind of casting process like, given that you worked with many different casts on this play? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, a dream, like we have an absolute dream cast. There could be nothing better. So um, it was thrilling and very exciting to have this group of actors read the script, you know, meet with me and Jason and say like, yes, I'm ready to go. So yeah, it's just been tremendous and they're all terrific. Right. And what has the rehearsal process been like? I think it's been maybe a couple of weeks since it started. And yeah, it's been a couple of weeks and it is like, a fa you know, it's fast. It's like a this play just like moves, moves, moves. So um, it's a very collaborative room. There's a lot of uh, laughter and fun and um, pe people trying to make theater magic. So it's exciting. Right. And how much of the kind of set or kind of visual movement do you have written into the script or how much do you like to? Yeah, I tend to to script a lot of the physicality um, because I tend to write real physical comedies. And so the text is often connected to the physicality. So I don't really write too much like blocking or staging into a script. I really try to leave that up to creative teams to find, but there's certainly in the script are, it's the script really functions as a roadmap of physicality and where, um, you know, where certain, certain things that happen physically connect with the text. And then there's tons of open space for people to find their own um, amongst the roadmap. <laughs> And so even in addition to your theater acting and playwriting, something else I know you do a lot of is voice work. On yeah. Screen. And how did that first kind of come into your life as a? Sure. So actually you were asking me about Jolson and Company, which was a show that I did like over 20 years ago. Um, and I was, as I said, I was Nancy Ander uh, Anderson's understudy. And that the understudy for the men in that show was a man named Bruce Winant, who is still my friend. And Bruce was starting up a company in New York that was a loop group company, um, additional dialogue recording, ADR for film and TV. I think his dad had run a company like this in Los Angeles. And so he was sort of picking, picking that up and starting it off in New York. And they they hired improv actors to come in and basically you function as like a vocal extra. So if there's a big party scene and the two lead characters are having a scene, you need to know that, you know, you need to hear the ambiance behind them. So they would bring in improv actors to sort of fill out the space. And ADR, it, it, it's more complicated than that. There's a lot of different components to it, but he brought me in on a job um, 20 some years ago and I loved it. And they, so I've been working with him and his partner, Dan Fink, ever since doing um, ADR for film and TV that, uh, is in post-production in New York City. 
Um, and be, and then once I got into that, then that opened up doors to commercial voiceover and narration and audiobook. I do a lot of audiobook narration. So um, during the pandemic, I installed a voiceover booth in my house so that I could continue to work. And I learned how to edit my own material. So that was sort of a saving grace during the pandemic for work, for our family. Um, and I'm a proud member of the Screen Actors Guild. So that's how our family gets our health insurance is through my voiceover work. Oh, yeah. yeah. And what do you think makes a voice and your voice in particular sort of lend itself well to that kind of work? And uh, Well, it's different for each thing. So for audiobook work, your job is really to have sort of a neutral voice when you're narrating and then be able to swiftly give a hint of the characters when the characters are in dialogue. So it's actually a perfect job for somebody who's into sketch comedy and improv because usually people in that um, you know, people who love that usually love playing a million characters, which is something I love to do. So getting an opportunity to narrate a book that has a hundred characters is a dream for me because I get to affect my voice in a hundred different ways. So in audiobook work, that's sort of um, you know, the skill set required. For loop group stuff, it's it's similar in that you are looking at the screen, you're looking at an actor, usually a specific actor whose mouth is moving and you have to fill it in. What is that person saying? I see those mouth flaps. How does that person talk? What would that character, who is that character? You know, you have to very, very quickly invent everything. So that fills my writer brain too, because it's like creating dialogue um, for, for characters. Um, so yeah, so the, you know, th those are the two main forms of of voiceover that I do. And then, you know, commercial and narration, uh, you know, like promo work and stuff like that. That's just kind of affecting your voice. Next up on Nick at Night, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and and having fun and playing in that way, which I love to do. Yeah. And has there been a project or an audiobook that's been especially kind of difficult, maybe something longer? Or... Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any one particular book that posed like a huge, a huge problem or anything. They're all different, all, all challenging in different ways. Right. And so I'm very curious about your work at the Encore series, Twice with Dear World and I Married an Angel. And how did the I Married an Angel first come about? Sure. So I Married an Angel. Um, my friend Sarah Salzberg and I, um, I'm trying to think how that came to us initially. I can't recall if it came through her, if it came through me, but somehow um, we got a phone call that said, hey, will you take a look at the script? Um, it's a very dated Rogers and Hart piece. Um, it's it's pretty misogynistic in style and tone. Um, of no fault of anybody's, it was just representative of that era. Um, and so in their effort to present it at a, you know, to a contemporary encore's audience, they really wanted us to look at it through uh, a feminist lens and see what we could do. And so we did our best. Um, and Sarah and I had a great time working together. She's just great. And Josh Bergoss was the director choreographer on that. So that was a really fun, wonderful collaboration. Um, yeah. So, and then for um, Dear World, Josh Rhodes was the director on that. And I had been working with him on a different project. And so he brought that project to me and said, we take a look. We'd love to sort of 
strengthen this, tighten this. Um, Donna Murphy was involved in in sort of the ideas of of how we could um, bring that to a contemporary audience. So that was really, really fun to get to work on that as well. Yeah. And how many kind of archival materials were available for both? Were there sort of like different script drafts or like videos? Yeah. Of yeah. City Center Encores is amazing. Their research department is glorious. So there was, I mean, drafts upon drafts upon drafts. I had research up, up the wazoo, you know, like I had tons of stuff to look at and draw from and pull from and recordings to listen to and hearing where different jokes might have worked in different ways. So yeah, that that was a there was a lot, a lot of source material to work with, which was so helpful. And what was the process like of kind of changing the lens on I Married an Angel? It seemed like maybe sort of a more a bigger change than with Dear World. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, Dear World was that they both were pretty significant shifts. Um, I Married an Angel was was maybe more difficult because the core, the premise of I Married an Angel is that a man hates women <laughs> and doesn't want to marry a woman unless she's absolutely perfect. That is, that's what that play is really about at its core. Um, and lo and behold, the beautiful, perfect woman descends from heaven and she's basically just there to do his bidding. Um, that is essentially the premise of the show. So that was, that was really like, uh, <laughs> tough to swallow to look at that and be like, how do we help this? And, you know, so it was really about modifying language and trimming things that were, you know, just absolutely could not be digested by a contemporary audience and, you know, filling in the blanks there a little bit. But the goal of Encores is really to present those scores. Um, so we were making absolutely no changes to music or lyric. Um, so that had to remain essentially true. So you only have so much leeway within the script because it has to connect with the score. Um, and then in Dear World, what was interesting about Dear World is um, in the undercurrent of the existing material was this real um, plea for a greener world, you know, for keeping our planet safe and healthy. And so I really found it um, exciting to get to go in and really kind of magnify the existing themes, sort of trim out the stuff that no longer felt relevant and highlight the stuff that felt like, yeah, this we're still dealing with this in 2023. Uh, so that was really part of the task for Dear World. Right. And what was the process like too with sort of adding back in cut songs and making those fit into the new script? And Yeah, um, that was a very collaborative process. Um, the music team led by Mary Mitchell Campbell and Josh Rhodes, who was directing, they um, really the brunt of that work happened on their end. And they sort of decided, here's the score that we really would like to present. Um, and then I had that to kind of work with and say, what do you think if we put this song here, it might lead us to here. And um, it was really, really collaborative in spirit there of just finding the just right balance of existing material, what we wanted to showcase, what we wanted to highlight and how, what order we were going to present that in. And is there another kind of underappreciated show that you would want to revise and bring back in that way? Oh, what a good question. I haven't thought about that. I don't know. Now I'm going to think about that, Charles. Thanks for that question. That's a good idea. Yeah. And so we've talked a little bit about Clue, which of course is one of the most produced 
high school shows. And was that your idea to make a high school version or were you commissioned to do that or? Yeah, so what happened was um, uh, some New York commercial producers acquired the rights to the film. And then they set out to find a creative team to create a stage adaptation of it. And initially I wasn't part of that initial, um, the initial adaptation. And eventually, um, eventually they, they came to me and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I sort of came on board and crafted the script that exists today. Um, and then that that script opened at Cleveland Playhouse in 2020, um, in like January of 2020, right before the pandemic. So we had all these lofty plans for it and then everything sort of shut down, but schools were still trying to figure out how to do shows. And so the, it was really the licensing company that said, hey, can we, can we take this script and, you know, what could we do to make this script uh, more user-friendly for high schools? And we kind of collaborated on that. And then it kind of took off in the high school world. And then once the pandemic lifted a bit and theater started opening again, you know, I think last year Clue was like the third most produced play in the country, which was incredible. Um, so yeah, now it's just kind of playing everywhere. And it was just named the most produced play in a high school for the fourth year in a row, which is amazing. Wow. And have you had the chance to see a lot of these kind of high school productions and regional? Um, I, I, have, I have been, so what I have been doing is doing lots of Zoom calls with high school casts all over the world, which I have loved. It's so wonderful. Um, these kids are just amazing and they're having such a blast doing the play. So that makes me so happy. Um, and I have had the opportunity to see a bunch of the professional productions of Clue, which has also been a total treat. Um, specifically the production at the Alley in Houston was phenomenal. It was, they did it at sort of in a, a thrust stage and it was really innovative the way they did it. It was just awesome. And then I, I collaborate with Casey Hushin, who is a dear friend and collaborator and director that I love to work with. And she and I collaborated on the sort of the pilot production, which was the Cleveland Playhouse, and then that production at La Mirada Theater in LA, and then at Paper Mill. And it's that production that's going to launch a national tour in 2024 will be the, the production that Casey and I have had the opportunity to work on together. So I'm very excited about that. And with this um, adapting it for a high school version, what kind of changes had to be made to make it sort of more user friendly, as you were saying? And yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that much, to be honest. I think um, you know, there's some adult language, there's some adult adult themes that certain high schools. So it was really more a matter of saying like, yeah, if a high school doesn't want to say this word, they could say this word, or if they you know if they don't want this character to have this job, she could have this job, or that kind of a thing. Um, there weren't too many, it weren't too many macro changes. Right. And when adapting a famous movie like Clue or like Mystic Pizza, what have you found to be sort of the difference in an arc of a movie versus a stage play and the sort of changes that? Yeah. So when you're adapting, what's interesting is in a film, you've got, you can zoom in. You know, you can go real close and you can get just one moment on a stage. You've got a full stage picture to fill all the time and you can't quickly cut anywhere else. You know, it, it requires manpower to get to a new room. It requires thought and choreography and, you know, a set. And how are we going to do this in front of an audience? You know, you don't have the benefit of an editing room 
where you can do a quick cut. So whenever you're adapting something from the screen to the stage, it's figuring out how do we take the essence of the story, the core of these characters, and translate it into a completely different medium of storytelling. Um, and that becomes the challenge. Right. And with a project like Mystic Pizza or like what you did during the pandemic with the um, thoughts of teenagers about the pandemic, what is it like to write for younger characters aside from younger actors? Yeah. Well, are you talking about the project Everything Seems Like Maybe? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that project, you know, really on that project, my job was much more as a curator than as a writer um, because what we did there is I sort of sent out um, notice to a bunch of different high schools across the country uh, requesting kids to write their own really what amounted to monologues but I think it was initially pitched as essays about their experience in the pandemic and then I took a whole bunch of essays I think 20 plus of these writings from students across the whole country and then helped to shape and curate them to create a cohesive piece of theater that could be performed by however many students a school wanted and it was really really wonderful to get to work with kids especially during that really challenging time um and hear their voices and get to elevate their voices and um speak with kids all across the country about their experiences and what they were going through it was really rewarding I really loved working on that project yeah and even aside from the sort of logistics of a life in the theater how do you think being a mom has influenced your work in in more sort of concrete ways like oh my gosh well I love being a mom it's like my most favorite thing about being alive <laughs> so I think it informs everything I do. I think when you become a parent, at least for me, it was unlocking a level of love that I didn't really know existed in the world until it, it came into my life. And it just kind of opened up my heart in a, in a new way and made me more uh, maybe open or vulnerable or willing to uh, want to put myself out into the world in a more meaningful way, maybe. Um, yeah, I think being a parent has informed almost every choice I've made since the day I became a mom. Oh, that is wonderful. And so aside from what we talked about, about voiceover work and all that, what was the experience of the pandemic like for you, both sort of creatively and personally? And Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously it was scary for everybody and people were very sick and there were very serious things happening politically in our country at the time and 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 still. Um, so there was a, a deep level of sadness and fear and, you know, all of the anxiety that I think our society was experiencing collectively was certainly experienced in our home too. However, I will also say that it was a really sweet period of time for our family. You know, I have two teenage sons and normally uh, they'd be out, you know, out and about hanging with their friends. And um, we we had the benefit of having a lot more time together, playing games and watching shows and taking walks. And, you know, it's it, there was some really special times together as a family during that stretch that I will value forever. Um, 
and there was, it was a lot of disappointment too. There was a lot of stuff that my kids didn't get to do during those years. That was tough. And personally, professionally, I had a bunch of shows that were canceled and delayed and that was really challenging. But then it was also a wonderful time to be writing without pressure. You know, there was no theaters were open anywhere. So nobody was doing anything. So might as well explore ideas. So I wrote a lot. It was a very um, productive time for me as a writer, which was great. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, a, a, there were, there were good things and there were not so good things, but, um, we, we, we definitely made it through. Right. Right. And something I know you did coming out of the pandemic was this Disney review called Jolly Holiday. And what was the process like of kind of putting that together with all of this great material? And Oh gosh, it was great. Um, you know, having the opportunity to work with the Disney family and get to know the the people that work with Disney on Broadway was fantastic. You know, what could be better? And I love I'm a huge Disney fan. So I loved all the material. Um, we were designing the show specifically for the holiday slot at the Paper Mill Playhouse, which is like 10 minutes from my house um, and is run by Mark Hobie, who is a, a friend and mentor of mine from my days at Northwestern. So that was exciting for me too. Um, and I was working with Casey Hushin on it and, you know, I just love her. So the whole experience of creating Jolly Holiday was a total joy. We had so much fun and audiences loved it. So that was great. Yes. Yes. And have there been projects that you started work on and then ultimately decided sort of not to pursue? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, look, I've been, I've been doing this for over 20 years. So that you know, part of the game is having a thousand ideas and then honing in on one that you're going to spend the next 10 years of your life devoted to. Um, so the rest of those 999 ideas sometimes fall by the wayside along the way. Um, I try not to go too deep into a project that I don't fully believe in. So I could probably count on one hand the amount of projects that I've sort of left midstream of being fully committed to. It's never a great feeling when you realize like, maybe this wasn't such a great idea. Let's go in a different direction. Um, but that does, that's not the norm. But I think that happens to everybody in creative fields. You know, you sort of have to follow your gut and follow where you're feeling inspired and where your passion is. Right. And to the extent that you can sort of talk about it now, what are the ideas that you're working on or that you'd like to work on or things like that? Sure. Um, let's see. I'm working on a bunch of different projects. Um, I, I mentioned this Loch Ness project that I'm working on. Um, so that's one idea. Um, I have a new play that I'm working on that's called Glenview 1989. Um, about It's sort of like a coming of age comedy about a teenage girl uh, in Chicago. Um, I'm working on a new musical play called Houston that I'm developing with Edie Brickell. Um, who wrote Bright Star and, you know, she's a, a pop icon. <laughs> um, she's Paul Simon's wife and she's just lovely. So she and I are working on this new show together. Um, so that's been really exciting. Um, I have a one woman show that I'm working on. Um, and yeah, I'm developing that. And I, and then, oh, and then I have this other sort of like, um, I think it's like a 14 person uh sort of farcical um vaguely murder mystery comedy that I'm also working on 
at the same time. So I just have a bunch of different projects, all of which are kind of on hold at the moment because my focus is solely on getting this play uh, up on Broadway next month. Um, and then, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see what, see what strikes me, see where my attention needs to go. Oh, and I'm, I'm also working on this new jukebox musical called Always Something There that I'm developing as well. Um, and that goes into workshop in October. Oh. So yeah, I just have my, I've got a bunch of different things all brewing at the same time. Yes, those all sound great. And then the final kind of project I'd love to talk about is your um, semi-autobiographical play that you wrote called Comedies Out. And what was that like to sort of write a character who's based on you? And how is that kind of a unique challenge? Sure. So Comedies Out is, it's actually, that's a pilot script for television that I wrote. Oh. Um, it's not a play, although that's a good idea, Charles. Maybe I should <laughs> Um, and it is based on a true something that happened to me where I had a this was many years ago I had a creative meeting with somebody in Los Angeles and to be honest I don't even really remember who it was anymore um, and he was asking me what I liked to write and I was talking about how I naturally gravitated towards comedy and I really like writing comedy and with a total straight face he looked at me and he said yeah comedy is out and I thought in that moment what? Like, what do you mean comedy's out? Like, com comedy doesn't, that's not something that goes out of style. Jokes aren't, like, people always want to laugh. And I think what he was trying to say was that networks weren't currently buying, like, 30-minute sitcoms. But the way he said it was, like, nobody's going to laugh anymore ever again. And I thought that was, like, the funniest thing I had ever heard. Uh, and so I wrote this pilot script about uh, a comedy writer <laughs> who is, um, you know, trying to get her stuff made. So it was sort of loosely inspired at that one event. And then the rest of it, the rest of it is sort of fictional, fictional, but that was the impetus was that weird meeting. And then, so the final question I'd love to ask is with such a great career, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out as a writer? Yeah, well, I will share the advice that was given to me when I was starting out as a writer, which is to read as many plays as possible. Um, and of course, see as many plays as possible, but really it's the reading of plays that I think makes you a stronger writer because the more you read, the more you start to see the nuances of different writers' styles, how they, you know, you were asking me about stage directions before and, you know, if, if I put the physicality into my plays, every writer has a different, there's, there's different degrees of, how a writer puts forward a, a, a new play. Um, and the more you read it, the more you start to learn how, where you and your voice might fit into that equation. And so I think that's the, the best thing that young writers can do is read, 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 read. Every play, every genre, you know, um, American Theater Magazine puts out this list every year of the most produced plays in the country. And for many, many years, I have tried to make sure that I have read those plays that I know, like, what are audiences craving right now? What do people want? Um, and and learning about that and, and being in touch with that feels like a really important first step for any young writer. Yeah, that is great advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and meet you. You're so cool, Charles. This is so awesome that you do this. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I will be joined by author and playwright Paul Rudnick, 
Paul Rudnick's new book, Feral Covington and the Limits of Style, was just released, and his myriad other books include I Shudder, Gorgeous, and I'll Take It. He's also the author of the Broadway play I Hate Hamlet, as well as Jeffrey, Valhalla, The New Sanctuary, Regrets Only, The Naked Truth, and Rude Entertainment. His screenplays include such hilarious movies as Sister Act, In and Out, The First Wives Club, and The Addams Family Values. You won't want to miss this episode, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.